I love going through the Bible, starting new books, kind of exciting. Uh, and uh, Mark is, is exciting. It's one of my four, four favorite gospels. Um, <laughs> uh, but Mark is different, uh, very unique in all the gospels. It's very short. It's one of the shortest uh, as far as just verses and chapters. But it's, don't, don't mistake it as, uh, you know, small and inferior. Uh, it's actually small but mighty. And it's important. Uh, it's hard-hitting, fast-paced. We'll even see that perhaps tonight. Um, and um, there's a word that we're going to see later on in our study that we're going to see all throughout the Gospel of Mark that's kind of unique to uh, the four Gospels, but you see it all the time. And it has kind of the sense of the, the book itself, the way it's written, uh, very fast-paced, very hard-hitting, 16 chapters, um, I remember a, a pastor who was talking to his congregation about, um, you know, lying. And he said, you know, uh, he did a whole sermon on lying and how important it is to be honest um, and how easy it is to just kind of lie about stuff that you don't even really need to lie about, you know, and he went on and on. Um, but um, he then at the end of his sermon, he gave the congregation assignment uh, and he said, he said, uh, I want you to read the, um, the uh, uh, you know, the 17th chapter of Mark. <laughs> and the next Sunday, he said, how many of you guys read Mark chapter 17? And everybody, you know, about, about a third of the congregation lifted their hand, you know. And they said, I got you. There is no Mark chapter 17. There's only 16 chapters in the gospel of Mark. But it does sound like there should be a Mark chapter 17 because, you know, the other gospels have a lot more chapters. But, um, but small but mighty, hard-hitting, uh, we're gonna lo learn new information. Like if you took out the gospel of Mark, we'd lose really key stuff about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so um, the first thing we wanna establish is who is this, um, the Mark? Because there's different Marks in the Bible. Um, this is Mark, who's also probably best known as his surname, John Mark. Uh, it's the same Mark as John Mark. Um, this might explain a little bit, as we know who this fella is. Um, uh, he wasn't one of the apostles. Um, but he, he was about 12 years old when Jesus was, came on the scene. And so you might say, well, how does he know how to write a gospel? Well, there's actually a few answers that we can look to. Um, <clears throat> and, and we also realize when we kind of compare some of the gospels, when we were in Matthew, which we just ended a few weeks ago, uh, we remember it was written to the Jews, for the Jews. And because of that, Matthew employed all kinds of idioms of Jewishness an Old Testament. In fact, Matthew referred to the Old Testament over and over and over and over. And over. All throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you know, he referred to the Old Testament of the Jews, the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. Um, and so it, it carried Jewish themes, but it presented Jesus as the Messiah, uh, the King of Kings. And that's kind of how we saw it. Um, you know, uh, it, it uh, dealt with a lot of the sermons of Jesus, in Mark's gospel, we're not gonna have a lot of references to the Old Testament. And we're not gonna hear a lot of the sermons of Jesus. There's gonna be quick references to some of those sermons, but Mark doesn't really go into those details. Um, he doesn't reference the Old Testament that much. In fact, tonight we're gonna see the one time where he really does that. Um, uh, but uh, the reason why that makes sense is because if the gospel of Matthew was written to the Jews, as it turns out, the gospel of Mark was written to the Romans. Um, the Romans, remember the early church, uh, you know, it started with Jesus 
And then the disciples, and then the disciples went out and started spreading the gospel after Jesus died, rose again and ascended into heaven. And it said, you know, that they started hearing the gospel and all over Jerusalem and then all over Judea. And, and then even to the uttermost parts of the world. And, and, and if you remember, they're at uh, Caesarea, Maritima, they're at the um, sea, uh, Mediterranean Sea, where Paul the apostle was standing uh, before Herod and uh, giving his testimony. Eventually he was shipped from you know, that area. Uh, he went on Paul's missionary journeys, but ultimately he'd make it to Rome where uh, Paul the Apostle, his journeys to Rome, uh, where he would eventually die there in Rome, but man, the church caught like wildfire and the Roman church was growing ever so quickly and, and it was under great persecution. If you ever wanna see the church grow and become stronger, just add persecution to the equation. It's amazing how the world over the centuries has tried to you know, thwart Christianity, but the best way to get Christianity going, uh, I hate to say it, but it's just true, is good old fashioned persecution. It separates the, the, uh, you know, the people that are sort of uh, fringe Christians or not Christians at all, but claiming to be Christians, which only muddies the water. But yeah, a little persecution, it kind of purifies the church, but it also empowers the church. And, uh, and that's what happened. So the church spread, the Romans uh, were starting to accept Christ even during the time of Paul. And um, Mark's gospel is largely by scholars um, showing that um, uh, Jesus is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So we'll kind of see that theme as we get going in it. Um, now, this gospel of Mark, um, uh, written to the Romans, uh, but it presents not Jesus as king like Matthew, but Jesus as a servant. Um, and, um, you know, uh, interesting, Luke's gonna be written to the Greeks and will present Jesus as the son of man or his humanity. Um, as, you know, like even in the genealogy of Luke, it, it, it brings us back to the seed of the woman. Uh, when we talk about the lineage or the genealogy of Mary and what have you, they're like, it's, the, the gospel of Luke kind of presents Jesus as humanity. Uh, Mark speaks of Jesus as, um, as a servant. Gospel of John written to the church or the whole world, you might say, um, and Jesus as the son of God. So this John Mark, um, his surname, John Mark, um, who was this little guy? Uh, well, when he, it's possible that Mark writes about himself in the gospel of Mark. Um, it's a funny little story that maybe you've forgotten. I, whenever I read this, people are like, what? What's going on there? That's weird. Um, it's in the, the story of the garden of Gethsemane, if you recall, um, when, uh, when Mark was just a little guy, something happened. Um, I'll tell you what that was in a second. Um, but we also know John Mark uh, somehow was linked to Peter. Now, how closely linked to Peter? Well, scholars debate. Some scholars actually argue that the gospel of Mark is technically the gospel of Peter. They'll say that. And the reason why, and it's not without warrant, um, the reason why is Mark was called um, Peter's son in, in, in the faith. Remember how Paul called Timothy his son in the faith? Well, Peter had one too. And uh, it's First Peter, uh, where uh, Peter talks about this in First Peter 5, 13, where uh, he kind of ends his epistle there. Uh, she was at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. And the idea is his son in, his, in, in the faith. He called... Um, you know, John Mark, his son in the faith. So some people refer to the gospel of Mark as Peter's gospel uh, uh, and, and perhaps told by Peter to Mark 
Uh, and maybe even Peter was giving him the words as Mark was penning the, the words or recording those words. We don't know for sure. But what's the story where Mike, Mark maybe writes about himself? It's Mark chapter 14. Uh, if we kind of fast forward a little bit, verse 51 and 52, it says this, uh, in Mark 14, 51 and 52, I've just got it up here for you for quickness. Uh, and there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. You didn't color that in Sunday school, did you? A little kid running around naked in the story. Um, what's going on with the Garden of Gethsemane? Um, and by the way, this is the only gospel that records this strange incident. Um, and so some speculate that um, there's, there's all kinds of speculation around what, what was going on here. Some speculate that Judas Iscariot, who had already betrayed Jesus when they were up in the room, remember the upper room, and then Jesus and his disciples went down into the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and some speculate that Judas first led the soldiers to John Mark's house. How do we know it's John Mark's house? Well, that, that's another part of the story. John Mark's mother was probably named Mary. Now this is not, we don't know this for certain, but it's, it's, you can kind of do the math in the gospel narrative. Remember there, there was a rich woman who had an upper room where they did the Last Supper? Um, many believe, remember when we went through the six Marys of the Bible? And I've told you one of the Marys of the Bible is the one that had the, the, um, the, the wealthy house where they would go up and do the uh, Last Supper. Um, most scholars believe that John Mark was the son of this Mary who lived, he lived in that house. So there's all kinds of speculation. Did Judas Iscariot bring the soldiers to apprehend Jesus at the Last Supper location only to find out he was gone? And so this would explain, remember it was later at night by the time they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. So maybe little John Mark just grabbed a cloth, uh, jumped out of bed um, and just kind of wearing his sort of biblical time pajamas. And he ran down to the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that Judas had betrayed Jesus. Uh, some speculate that that woke him up when uh, you know, uh, Judas first led the soldiers. All we know is there's a kid in the Garden of Gethsemane and what is he doing there? Well, he, it says here in our text, the young, um, you know, this little guy was following um, Jesus, uh, even in the garden. Uh, and, and then some of the young men laid hold on him to take him. Remember when you're in first grade and you're being chased on the playground and they grabbed your coat? Uh, you were easy to escape. Why? Because you wiggled out of your coat and they were there holding your coat and you were running free. Problem with this guy is he didn't have anything other than the coat. Uh, so off he ran, went uh, naked. Um, so just a little kid uh, running, running around the garden because I'm naked. That's an interesting beginning for John Mark. Um, but that's, uh, she had a nice home, the mother of John Mark. And also Mary had a brother whose name was Barnabas. Now this explains something because we know there's a link between John Mark and Barnabas. The Bible tells us about that. Uh, John Mark, remember when Paul always had sort of a, a dude that was hanging out with him. You know, he went out two by two, sort of like uh, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. So it was always Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And then after Barnabas left, it was Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas. It, that's, that's, by the way, a good model for ministry, you know, to have the various, um, you, know, uh, you know, people with you, accountability is not a bad idea. And, uh, and, and Paul and Barnabas were, were the first ones, but Barnabas took John Mark, his little nephew, uh, on the first missionary journey with Paul. And if you recall in that missionary journey, something happened that was not good. Some, something happened where John Mark freaked out on the first missionary journey with Paul the apostle. 
uh, and just totally bailed on him, left. Uh, maybe he was freaked out by the danger uh, or by the, just being a missionary, but he left. And so Barnabas and, and Paul the apostle continued on and did their thing. Um, but um, then later on, Barnabas sort of tries to you know, care for his, you know, cousin, or his uh, nephew and sort of nurse him back to health uh, in kind of a cool way. Um, and then he told Paul, hey, you know, John Mark's ready to go with us again on the next missionary journey. Uh, what happened? Well, th well th this is one of the interesting disagreements in the Bible between two very godly men. And you kind of wonder who was right, Paul or Barnabas? It's there in Acts, you can jot this down um, in your notes, but it's Acts chapter uh, 15 where we read about that. It says, some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of God and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good um, to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them uh, to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them, Paul and Barnabas, that they departed asunder one from the other. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed being uh, recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria, Cilicia, confirming the churches. Who was right? Paul or Barnabas? There was, it was a sharp contention. It was so sharp that they said, I'm out of here. I'm not, Barnabas, I'm going my way, you go your way. Um, and I have a strong feeling about this uh, as we've studied the book of Acts in times past. I'm pretty convinced that they're both right. They both have different jobs to do. Do you ever wonder if the Lord sort of sours certain situations on purpose to spread, spread things out? to get people to do something else. Because if, you know, we look at this, you know, this scripture right here and I think, what a, what a win. Uh, you got Paul and Silas, who Silas turns out to be a total stud and he goes off with Paul and they're awesome. Make, they make a great team. Uh, and then, but Barnabas takes John Mark and goes off and, uh, you know, goes to Cyprus. Um, this is cool that these two guys, uh, be, you know, become four guys. Uh, and I wonder sometimes if the Lord does that. I also learned from this, the Lord calls different people to different kinds of ministry. Uh, Paul was called to be the leader of really uh, the, much of the church at that time. I mean, he was, he was leading many churches. Thousands of people were depending on Paul to be where he was gonna be at the right time and being led by the Lord, leading the church. But Barnabas, his name interestingly means son of consolation. It seems that Barnabas had such a deep concern for little John Mark or younger John Mark, that he was more willing to stick with him and sort of disciple him back to good standing and care about him more than the greater work that Paul had to do. Um, and so it's interesting, because I'm not sure Paul had time to risk, or even the, the, the you know, it, it would be dangerous to be with Paul if you were wavering on your faith or wavering if you're on your calling. That'd be a, Paul needs people that are pretty committed, wouldn't you say? So I agree with Paul. I look at Paul and think, yeah, you know, especially as a church, you know, our size, I've had to kind of change some of my, my own personal, uh, you know, time. And I, I miss the good old days when eighth Greek, I met with everybody in the church in one week. Uh, I was able to do that, have lunch. And, and, and for years, uh, it wasn't until a few years back, I, I still meet with people in the church, but um, uh, I, can't, I can't meet with everybody at Athey Creek. It would take me 3,000 years to have lunch and I'd have to uh, die of a heart attack because 
too many lunches and, you know, all that to say, uh, I'm thankful for our pastoral staff and team. We have a huge team of people and, and it's cool because uh, my role has changed a little bit over the years to kind of cover the, the greater church, but we have people in ministry here at Athey that uh, zero in and it's hard. I know some people, some of you have called the church office. You're like, I'd like to meet with Pastor Brett. Uh, well, uh, you know, what you'll probably hear, and this, this breaks me, man. I tell you, this hurts me to even have to say this, but this, oftentimes our pastors say, well, boy, can one of our other pastors meet with you? But I'm a friend of Brett. Um, I have lots of friends. I'm so thankful for that. Um, but uh, if I just met with my staff, it would take all year. Uh, we, we have a big staff here. We have a really tiny staff for the size of church that we have, by the way. But even still, 130 staff members here um, for a church our size is pretty small. But staff and then another group of leaders. I mean, for me to spend a lot of time with our elders, deacons, uh, staff, that's kind of a full-time job right there. So I, I'm, I, I wanna say this uh, to you guys on Wednesday night because if somebody says, Pastor Brett may not have the time to me, it's not because I don't want to. Uh, in fact, I really do. Um, but it's actually because it's impossible, totally impossible. Uh, sometimes I, I've thought, I, we need to go back to the days when I could meet with everybody. And, and I thought, how do you do that? If you ever think of that, then I'll meet for you with you for lunch. Uh, how, to, how to figure that one out? Uh, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. That, that's probably inviting all kinds of trouble. Um, <laughs> But Bar Barnabas had more of that, that ministry to this one guy and said, man, I'm gonna focus on John Mark. I love that, son of consolation. We have Athey Creekers that are so good at that, better than I am um, on a more of a one-on-one -on -one kind of praying with, discipling, counseling, uh, loving on, you know, caring for. Uh, I, I love our watch parties. I have to admit, uh, shockingly, they've been so cool because uh, people are developing really great friendships in these small watch parties, um, almost more than you can do in this room. This room is so big and there's so many people piling in and parking and track traffic and it's a little stressful, but there's a bunch of people around the world right now that are getting together in their groups of five, 10, 15, 20, there's a couple 300. Uh, I mean, there's a, a couple big watch parties, but, but, um, but I love the, the relationships that are being developed. It's, it's a little bit like old school Athey Creek. Um, but I think everybody's called to kind of a different calling. What is your calling? Are you a Paul or are you a Barnabas? And, and be careful not to argue with the, the other one. Uh, I think sometimes we, we do that unnecessarily. Some people are called to kind of the greater ministry, the bigger group, uh, dealing with more of the multitudes, where other people are called to be more the son of consolation like Barnabas. Now, what's cool about this story, by the way, when I say who is right, if you kind of zoom out of the Bible, there's something that's kind of cool. Because Paul's basically like, get John Mark out of here. I don't have time for losers. That's kind of what Paul is saying. Um, but what was one of the last things Paul said before he was beheaded in Rome? We find that in 2 Timothy 4.11, where uh, you know, everybody had departed from him except for Luke. Only Luke is with me, Paul said. He said, take Mark, and that's John Mark. Take John Mark um, and bring him with, the, uh, with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Don't you love the redemptive thing of that where John Mark at the end of Paul's life, bring, send Paul, John Mark, I'd love to see. You know, one of the last guys he wants to see is John Mark, the guy that he wouldn't let him go on a missionary journey with him. So you might say Barnabas was, must have been successful in his developing of, uh, of John Mark and, and discipling him, which is pretty cool. Paul was successful in his mission to see the church grow and become all, uh, worldwide. 
And Barnabas was successful in his mission. Um, and um, now why was he called John Mark? Uh, by the way, John or uh, Johannes was his Hebrew name and Marcus would be his Roman name, which by the way, that would be his audience, the Roman audience. So that's why it's called Mark, not John Mark, the gospel of John Mark. Now, um, last week, uh, maybe it was this weekend, I think I showed you our graphic of the Gospel of Mark, and there you'll see the, the bull's head. Um, um, and uh, who wants to take a stab? Why do I have a bull's head on the uh, Gospel of Mark? Is it because I like top sirloin or uh, ribeye steaks? That, that reminds me of like the Sizzler logo or whatever back in the old days. Um, anybody want to take a stab? What's the, what's the ox head have to do with anything? Oh, okay, yep, sacrificial servanthood. Which one's first, servanthood or sacrifice? I'm gonna say servant because the gospel of Mark does, but you're right, I was gonna say that. I was gonna say servanthood and sacrifice because it's kind of in that order. Jesus demonstrates as servant, but you nailed it. Good job, Austin. Uh, and uh, um, you, you, you see Jesus as a servant in the gospel of Mark. And of course, he's the servant who, who also becomes the sacrifice. And so that's why I have a bull. And that's why you see the redwood because I, I want us to be thoughtful of Jesus who came and served. Now you say, well, why is an ox a type of a servant? Uh, does anybody know? Well, it's a beast of burden. Um, and an ox does, uh, is a type of servanthood in the Bible, but it's also used at times for various things for sacrifice. So it sort of works. Is there anywhere else where we might see the ox related to the gospel of Mark? Anybody want to take a stab? There's a, even a deeper, you know, there's a deeper magic still. Anybody want to take a stab? Yes. I think you're on the right track. I'm not sure. What did somebody say? What is it? What is Yes. Ding, 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 ding. The four beasts. But it even goes deeper than that. But you're, you're I mean, how do you yell it out on a Wednesday night Bible study? That, that's, that's probably the best way. Um, so so um, I, I probably shouldn't go into all this stuff uh, uh, because nobody else does. But I, <coughs> I think it's kind of cool. I love this stuff. Do you guys recall... Do you guys recall when um, we were doing, wait, how many guys were with us back in the book of Numbers? Raise your hand. Oh man, yeah. So, so some of you missed this, uh, so I'm gonna do a really fast thing. But one of the fun things in Numbers, we were, we were doing one of those sections that a lot of people deem as the boring section of the Bible where it talked about all the numbers of the people and where they were camping and all this stuff. And I was, I was showing you, and we started building this graphic that, uh, that Micah helped me put together. Um, I don't have that same graphic. Uh, this is one of the graphics I used at that time. But do you recall when you looked at the encampment and you, and you calculated the numbers of each tribe, you, could, you can actually size how the camp was shaped. If you remember, the tabernacle was at the center of the camp. Um, several tribes would go out east, several tribes would go out west, some would go north and some would go south. south. Do you guys remember that? And then we kind of put it all together and then we did an aerial view and we moved over and looked at it. Do you remember what it formed? A cross. And that was kind of a fun thing. We're all like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, when Balaam yelled, tried to curse out children of Israel, he was yelling down the cliffs at the children of Israel encamped in the desert. This is what he would have seen right here. Um, this is how they camped. And this would be the exact, you can see the different size rectangles that are um, commensurate with their numbers of people. Um, but what you also might remember in that study is each 
one of these sections of the camp, all four quadrants, were also had an ensign or a, a symbol that was representing each section, north, south, east, and west. Um, and uh, this is kind of cool because the, according to rabbinical tradition and, and other places, we read about the standard of Judah, um, which you'll see there uh, going down there, Judah, the biggest tribe of all, the standard of Judah. Do you guys remember what the, the, was the symbol of Judah? Lion. Could you guess, if you had to say that, um, now, now this is where we, we've, we see so many correlations in the Bible. The Bible has just got layer upon layer and connection upon connection, and, and we don't even do it justice. But um, if you were to say there's four sections and we have four gospels, um, is there a correlation between each of these sections with each of the four gospels? The answer is absolutely yes, and it's kind of fun. So can you guess what gospel Judah might be representing, anybody? Matthew, because remember, Jesus is king. Uh, Jesus uh, is presented in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is king. And there's other reasons why we can connect the, the gospel of Matthew to these three tribes, and it's, it's a much deeper study uh, and what have you. Um, so basically, according to this, the rabbi's teaching, Judah was the figure of a lion, Reuben was a figure of a man uh, or a man's head, and Ephraim was the fig figure of an ox uh, or an ox head, and Dan, the, the, the one on the right there, uh, was a figure of an eagle. And, uh, and if you recall, uh, we already told you some of these uh, gospel you know, uh, symbols and what have you, but, but basically, as we go through these gospels, we saw Matthew as the, uh, to the Jews, uh, as Jesus as king, and, and um, by the way, Judah would have been facing eastward, just, uh, it'd be turned sideways, uh, if you're wondering about that, but it was represented by a lion. Uh, Ephraim, would, would have been uh, uh, westward. Uh, uh, Reuben would have been south and uh, Dan north. Uh, but, but all that to say, um, the, the different uh, symbols, lion, ox, man, eagle. I told you that Luke is the gospel that represents Jesus as a man, the son of man. Uh, Jesus' genealogy through uh, Mary, which was born of the seed of a woman. Are you guys with me still on this? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, but not only do you have it in the encampment uh, with these four faces, and we could talk about uh, why uh, Dan uh, would have been the eagle, um, but if you recall, um, uh, the Gospel of John is typified by an eagle, which is interesting because um, speaking of the church, um, Dan, the North, the way Dan got back into good standing after being in bad standing and listed among the tribes, there's, there's all kinds of cool things that are linked to the church uh, as the Gospel of John is written to the church. Um, so uh, I'm probably already kind of belaboring this point, but the point that I make here is the ox, uh, the eagle, the man, uh, the lion is also typified or shown um, in uh, Ezekiel chapter one, verse five, and Revelation four, six through seven, uh, these interesting creatures that Ezekiel and Revelation talks about, and there's some similarities there too. And many people see the connection of the four gospels, which the four, with the four heads or faces of these beasts and what have you. It's just kind of cool. Now, um, the reason the ox is such a great um, ty type 
uh, for Jesus as servant presented in the gospel of Mark is because Jesus will be um, depicted perfectly as a servant who is also willing to be obedient. Like Philippians 2, he became obedient even to the death of the cross, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant. That's that Philippians 2, 1 through 8 is basically the, what Jesus is, is shown, how he's shown in the gospel of Mark. Are you guys with me on that? That's kind of an important thing. So all that to say, I, I just wanted to uh, wet the whistle. You guys can do deeper study if you want on some of that stuff. And you might go back to our Numbers chapter two, I think is where we basically covered some of this stuff uh, in greater detail. Well, uh, now, Mark chapter one. So we got this um, John Mark uh, who writes this book uh, and probably given by Peter, Peter's words linked to Peter. And uh, he starts off in verse one, Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. You'll notice the title in many of your Bibles, the gospel according to Mark. Um, well, is it Jesus's gospel or Mark's gospel? Well, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's all about Jesus Christ, but this is sort of Mark's take on it, which could be Peter's take on the gospel. Um, but I love the word gospel. I used to not like the word gospel when I was younger, and I'll tell you why. People were weird about it. I remember watching these weird televangelists in the 1980s. If you were old enough to remember, they'd, they'd say, look, you, you couldn't just say gospel. You'd have to say, gospel. You had to like, uh, you remember those guys? We're preaching the gospel. I was like, what's, what, why? just say the word normally, weirdo. Uh, it just, it's as a kid, I mean, I, I'm sorry, but it just, they, the way the guys said it bothered me. So I'm like, what's with that word gospel? But the older I get, I've, I've once again fallen in love with the word gospel um, because it does mean, in fact, good news. The word gospel actually comes from the Greek word uh, euangelion, which means good news, good tidings, the proclamation of the grace of God manifest and pledged in and through Jesus Christ. Um, it is the good news. It's, uh, good is almost an understatement. It's the great news. It's an amazing, incredible news that God reached out to humanity to save us from our sins. How thankful, how blessed we are because of the gospel. And so um, I, I love that this, this starts. Notice that Mark's gospel doesn't start with like John. He starts with the beginning of all time. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Like he, John starts at the very beginning of all things. Um, and, and, but Mark starts, he, like again, fast paced, hard hitting. He's gonna start right with the beginning of the, the gospel narrative uh, and, and, and plunge into the story quickly. Um, uh, by the way, the gospel, it might do us well in these days to ditch some of the bad news that we're constantly hearing and replace it for the good news. How much good news do you listen to during the day versus how much bad news do you listen during the day? Are you a news junkie? Uh, and I tend to like to kind of see what's going on around the world and I do watch news from various sources and what have you. And um, it is interesting to watch people reel because Don Lemon, and Tucker Carlson have been canned, both of them. Uh, what, what are we gonna do? Doesn't matter what side you're on. You're, uh, there's people that are kind of freaked out. Um, but maybe that's a good thing in the sense that, um, you know, Don Lemon is not Jesus Christ, nor is Tucker Carlson. Um, I hope you know that. Some of you look, some of you look a little confused there. Um, no, Jesus alone has the gospel, the good news. 
And this world is full of bad news. And I wonder if, if, um, if some of us need to spend more time studying, learning, reading, and rejoicing in the good news of the gospel because you know, the other stuff can depress you. Uh, even if it's true, even if you're listening to what is true, uh, that can be depressing. Uh, but Jesus is the embodiment of truth, uh, which is so important. I love how the gospel will always prevail. Um, it dominates, it's the strongest. Uh, you know, news people, agencies, websites, podcasts, they're gonna all come and go, but the gospel will remain strong and steady no matter what happens in the world. Um, my favorite preacher of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way. He said, see what vitality the gospel has. Plunge her under the wave and she rises to the purer from her washing. Thrust her in the fire and she comes out the more bright for her burning. Cut her in, a, in sunder and each piece shall make another church. Behead her and like the hydra of old, she shall have a hundred heads for every one of, that you cut away. She cannot die, she must live for she has the power of God within her. <laughs> he was quite eloquent in the way he put things, but nothing can subdue the gospel of Jesus Christ or make it lesser. Um, the gospel is the good news that we all need so desperately. Um, so we see uh, chapter one here, as, as we're gonna proceed here, we're gonna see it kind of split into three sort of uh, parts of dealing with Jesus as servant. The first section is gonna be as Jesus, the identity of his servanthood. The second section in this chapter, we're gonna see the authority of his servanthood. And then the third section, the sympathy of his servanthood. So first of all, let's take a look at the servant's identity. And that's gonna be verses one through 11. Um, and it says uh, in verse two, it says, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You'll notice here that um, this is where um, Mark um, quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, interestingly, and this is the first time he's gonna quote from the uh, Old Testament in the Gospel of Mark and the last time in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember in Matthew, we were quoting, you know, Matthew was quoting the Old Testament all the time. Not so in Mark. Um, and and I'll, I'll kind of show you why as we get further on in this, but, um, but the point here is um, we're gonna see who this, um, this servant, Jesus, as he's presented, we're gonna see uh, the servant's identity and we're gonna see his identity through eyewitness accounts of various people. Um, the first witness that we see is John Mark himself. He saw a lot about Jesus traveling with Paul. Um, and, uh, and of course, John Mark has his own perspective as he served Jesus with Paul and Barnabas. The, the second witness that we're gonna see here uh, is the prophets themselves. And that's why I think Mark quotes from Isaiah and also Malachi. You'll see that the first quote there is in verse two. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face. That's Malachi chapter three, verse one, quoting the prophet. And then Isaiah 40, verse three, prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Um, these, these mentions from the prophets um, Mark begins his gospel by putting it in the correct context of prophecy about the Messiah who's coming, that, that the king would be a servant king. Um, and aside from the Old Testament quotations by Jesus, Jesus will quote the Old Testament in the gospel of Mark, uh, 
uh, later on um, in, in the red letters, but Mark's done right here quoting the Old Testament. I think that's kind of funny. It reminds me of Peter. Uh, there's reasons why I think Peter is part of the Gospel of Mark. And, and it has to do with, if you know Peter, you realize why it's a shorter uh, gospel. Uh, he just is kind of short and sweet, tough to beat, uh, kind of hard hitting. That's, that's who Peter was. Um, and because John Mark was schooled by Peter, probably called him a son of the faith, we're gonna see probably Peter's personality sort of pop out in this gospel. Um, the, so the first witness is John Mark himself. The second witness is the prophets of the Old Testament. The third witness will be John the Baptist, uh, will be the witness of this servant uh, identity. Uh, and we see that in verse four. It says in verse four, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance, uh, repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out uh, unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins. He did eat locusts and wild honey and preach saying, there cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Can you already feel the speed of this book? We're only in verse nine and we've already got Jesus baptized. Um, you know, like, like it's kind of amazing how quick. So there's a guy named John the Baptist in the wilderness with locusts, camels, and, and he baptized Jesus. The end. Like that's, that's kind of how Mark does it. Now, but, but, um, but Matthew's account on this uh, is a few chapters, a whole several chapters to cover the same thing we just read. But there's still new little nuances we're gonna see. Uh, and one of the things we need to address here was Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist, when he baptized people, he's famous for baptizing people, John the Baptist. Um, it doesn't mean he went to a Baptist church. I hope you understand that. He was a Baptist. Well, he wasn't an assembly of God or uh, Episcopal. No, no. Uh, John the Baptist was called that because he was a baptizer. He baptized people. But what was the baptism of, of John? And if you were baptized by John, what did that mean? Well, I need to tell you, it meant something very different than what it meant to be baptized later on once the church got up and running and going. Um, John the Baptist baptized people unto repentance. Um, but after that, you would be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, which is an important thing. Where did we read about that? Well, um, would you keep your finger here and go with me to Acts chapter 19? I wanna show you this, because this, this is important for, I think, our understanding of baptism. Acts chapter 19. Do you guys recall a dude named Apollos? Apollos was uh, um, a guy who was very popular with the um, new church and the Christians. Uh, apparently he had kind of that uh, personality. Uh, eventually people would say, we're of Apollos. And others would say, well, we're of Paul the apostle. Or we're of Jesus only. Like people were bragging about who they were linked to, uh, which was a bad thing. But, but, but apparently Apollos was one of those guys. But before Apollos was totally squared away, he, he loved Jesus, he was, he was a Christian, but he, he had a few things wrong. Check this out, it's Acts 19 verse one. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, 
He said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. <laughs> and he said unto them, what then were ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. See, John's baptism didn't include the Holy Ghost. Now keep that tucked away for a second. Where did John the, the baptizer get the idea to baptize? Well, that was a, a Jewish tradition. Um, and by the way, baptism, uh, if, if you um, know the Old Testament, they would go to the mikvah there, um, and they would, uh, which was like a hewn out tub out of stone, and they would immerse themselves uh, for cleansing. And there were several things that you would do that for. If you were a, a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew, <laughs> Um, there were three requirements for you if you read your Old Testament law. Uh, the three main requirements is you had to sit under the teaching of a scribe to teach you the Jewish laws, rules, rituals, festivals, feasts, like you had to learn. The second thing is you had to become circumcised if you were a male. Uh, that'd be a deterrent, I would think, to some people to, to have to go and be circumcised uh, in Bible times without any, uh, you know, uh, uh, anesthetic or anything. Uh, just a nice sharp stone and a rabbi. Okay, here we go. Let's go. Uh, that's how you become a Jew. So you, you're we're sitting on a rabbi, get circumcised. And then number three, you had to uh, ceremonially cleanse yourself in the, in the mikvah, which means you have to go and de uh, immerse yourself. Um, some people say, bro, why don't you do sprinkling like some churches? Um, because the origin of baptism in the Old Testament, which I think is a type and a picture, was immersion. And then it moves on uh, through. And I think it's all a part of the picture or type as it were. So that's kind of cool. So John the Baptist gets this idea from the, the Hebrew Bible, um, the idea of washing and repentance. And the idea is John the Baptist said, repent of your sins, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John the Baptist's message. And so before Jesus came, these were people that said, yeah, we're sinners and we wanna be washed. But did that perfectly wash them, the baptism in the water of a mikvah? No, um, it didn't perfectly wash them. It was, it was pointing forward to what Jesus would ultimately do. Now, when did it all change? I think there was a single moment in time when it all changed. Baptism by nature changed when Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist. Well, uh, what was the difference? Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, uh, well, wasn't that be the same as all John the Baptist? Well, what was the, one of the elements that was added to Jesus's baptism? The Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove and landed on him and God spoke from heaven. This is my beloved inside and who I'm well pleased. Um, and the Holy Spirit suddenly is part of that. And, and by the way, when did Jesus do his first miracles? Did he turn water into wine? Did he raise the sick or the dead? Did he heal the blind or the leper? Um, no, not until he was baptized and the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. That's when Jesus's ministry officially began. That's when he started doing miracles and all that stuff. It had to be the work of the Spirit. So this is why Paul is marveling. What, you guys don't even know if there's the Holy Spirit? Then how were you baptized? Well, we were baptized with the baptism of John, only to repentance. And Paul's like, dude, you guys all need to get baptized for real. And so they did it again. By the way, if you were baptized as an infant, you kind of fall in this category. You had well-meaning parents who said, oh, I'll get baptized as a baby and we'll sprinkle water and you're baptized. Um, the only problem with that, it's well-meaning and I know that people love that and it's traditional for a lot of families and stuff, but it's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible do you see uh, baptism of infants. It's a decision that you're supposed to make uh, of repentance 
and to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an outward profession of an inward commitment that Christ has done. It's you acknowledging that you're a sinner and your sins left in the river. And it's part of your understanding of salvation. Uh, it's a declaration of your faith in Christ. When you were a few weeks old, you weren't able to make any of that. You just remember maybe nothing. Um, and the priest remembers sprinkling water on your face. Uh, that's all. But um, well-meaning people, I'm not knocking their intention, but again, let's get back to the Bible, uh, not church traditions. Traditions can get you into trouble. Go with the Bible. The Bible's always right. Um, and uh, you always see people baptized in the Bible who understood what they were doing, and it included repentance. All throughout the Bible, it says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Were you able to repent a few months into your life? As a baby, you probably should have because you were pooping your diapers and you were screaming at the top of your lungs. You probably should have repented, but you didn't know to repent at that point. When you get older in life, you realize, man, I am a huge sinner and you repent and you're baptized, acknowledging the work of the cross. So um, that's, that's kind of important to understand. There is this difference. Um, and so uh, when they heard this, verse five, they went and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their, Paul laid their, his hands on them uh, and the Holy Ghost came on them and they spoke with tongues there in Acts chapter 19, if you keep reading that. So it's really kind of cool. That, that's an important thing. And by the way, I just wanna add, if you have not been baptized, maybe you were baptized as an infant and you checked that box, could I challenge you to maybe, hey, the sun's coming out, things are warming up, uh, the river's warming up there, the Willamette. We love to baptize you. We do baptisms weekly, I mean, all the time. So just call the church office. If you wanna get baptized, we'd like to um, accommodate. And it's a life changer. And, and I believe the Holy Spirit comes on you in a, in a unique way when you're baptized as just an obedient Christian. Does baptism make you saved? No, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Baptism is a work. But baptism is, in fact, something we're supposed to do as an obedient Christian. In fact, remember when James said, faith without works is dead? I think a, a person that's not baptized, there's a deadness in their walk, and it's, they're lacking. If you feel that deadness, it's time to get baptized. If, if you haven't been baptized, I'd like to invite you to, to, to take advantage of that. We'll, we'd love to do that. So um, back to Mark chapter one now. Um, before we uh, uh, um, move on from all this stuff, uh, verse six, notice he's wearing uh, camel's hair and a girdle skin about his loins, and he ate locusts and wild honey. This guy was a wild man. Um, I can just imagine in my mind's eye, you know, you can repent as he's smiling and there's a little twitching leg in between his teeth of a locust that he just had for lunch. Um, you know, this guy looked and seemed sort of crazy to the world um, and even to the religious leaders. They thought he was a nut. But, um, but John seems to be here a lone ranger, just a voice crying out in the wilderness. Don't you love John the Baptist? Um, and I would say this um, to especially our young people in, the, in this church, and if you're watching online, is this world wants to conform you to its image. And, um, and there's pressure to be trendy to be in agreement with, um, with what the world says and what the world wears and what they listen to and what's cool and hip. But man, I gotta tell you, um, you know, I, I think the Lord has called us to be separate. And can I just say, I, I, it's so funny. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, back in the 80s and uh, 70s and 80s, um, it was really cool to be a rebel and to be into punk rock. 
and all the punkers dressed different. And then, but then everybody started dressing like punkers. And, and, and pretty soon the rebel thing was the hip thing and it wasn't rebellious anymore. It was a poser rebellion. I kind of feel like that about everything. Everything sort of goes around these cycles and what's hip and cool right now is gonna be really stupid in a few years. Just look at your junior high pictures. Older, older you go, why was I doing it? Why did I wear my hair like that? Or what were we thinking wearing those clothes? Um, uh, and uh, it all comes around, but, but there's something about the person who goes against the flow of the world. And John the Baptist is one of those guys. He could care less what people thought about him. Um, and, and you don't have to be like the world to be an influencer in the world in the, in the biblical kind of way of influencer. The world wants to be an influencer on Instagram or social media, and it's all ridiculous, this fake world that everybody's living in. But the Lord says, I want you to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. And John the Baptist is one of these cool guys who wasn't caving into what everybody was talking about or doing. He was sort of the rebel, um, but he was, he was in his own way uh, set up to be used mightily by the Lord. People came from all over to hear this wild man out there in the wilderness. Um, and uh, I think that's an important thing. There should be a difference between us and the world as Christians. Um, if we fit right in with the world, we might be doing something wrong. Um, so we have to kind of think about that. So, okay, so, so far we're witnessing of, of Jesus, the servant. We've seen the witness of John Mark. We're gonna see the witness of John Mark himself. We're gonna see the witness of the prophets, verses two and three. We're gonna see the witness of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, uh, right here in uh, verses uh, four through nine. But now our next witness is actually the Father in heaven is gonna witness of Jesus, the servant. Um, take a look at verse 10. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is God. If there were any questions who Jesus was, don't you think this should have just snuffed out all the questions? You got the sky opening up and God booming from heaven with a bird flying down and landing on him. Like this is a big deal. Um, by the way, I should have brought my footage. Uh, when Debbie and I were on vacation, we went to a restaurant that was outdoors in Arizona and they can do that all year long because they have sunshine down there. Um, <laughs> but it was so fun because we were eating our breakfast out at this little restaurant uh, outside and, um, and there was this guy standing around and I thought he was there for the kids. Uh, it shows how smart I am. Uh, he, was, he was standing there with, and uh, he was carrying this um, like a red-tailed hawk. Uh, on a, on a, one of those gloves and he had this hawk and I thought, wow, that's cool. Look at the claws of this big hawk was there. And I thought he was there just to you know, show people. He was like demonstrating hawk stuff or whatever. But um, uh, later on, I, I, I noticed nobody talked to him. No kids were being entertained. So I just walked up to him and said, so, so man, what, 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 what's your role here? He said, well, have you noticed um, there's no birds here troubling your breakfast or trying to eat your waffles? The, 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 the restaurant hired this guy just to hang out. And he said, watch this. And, and, and this is cool, I got a video of this. The guy said, watch this. And he just kind of loosed, he, he took the little blindfold off his hawk and loosed the little leather strap around its claws. And then there were birds starting to come in. He kind of backed off and there were little birds, pigeons and stuff coming in and one starting to come down to the restaurant. And he just let that thing go. And man, his huge wings, ooh, ooh, ooh. And all the birds, pew they took off, man. They were like freaking out, you know? And, um, and it, it's so cool because, um, because uh, he, he said once in a while, he said, he said, man, this is kind of, it's ugly. And they don't, the, the restaurant doesn't like this, but once in a while it gets a hold of a pigeon. 
And I'm like, oh, I wish I could have seen that, man. I'm like, ah. But I guess the hawk will just snap the pigeon's neck like, like a pencil, you know? And, and he says, if that happens, birds don't come out for, for like weeks. They don't, they don't see, but this hawk, and then, and then he just kind of, you know, kind of does a little whistle and the hawk comes flying back, lands on his, on his hand. And like, it's, it's really quite a cool deal. Um, now, why did I tell you that story? Oh yeah, the Holy, <laughs> Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit, it says here, descends <laughs> on Jesus as a dove. Um, aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit is typified by a dove? Um, going to some churches, you think it was a chicken. It's all about the Holy Ghost. We're the Holy Ghost. It's like uh, it's like chicken, you know, or or maybe a screaming eagle. And the Holy Ghost. It's like people get all weird about the Holy Ghost. Man, I, I love that it's a dove. By the way, um, did you know there there's absolutely no difference between a dove and a pigeon, anatomically. Like, like uh, as far as a dove and a pigeon, they're exactly the same. Science tells us this. There's only one difference. You know, well, the color. Well, the color is a little bit, but there's actually white doves too, um, which is interesting. They look kind of, or white pigeons that look like doves. And in fact, a lot of times when you do the weddings and they say, we're letting go of the doves, they're pigeons. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because the, the difference between a pigeon and a dove is, is really one thing. It's temperament. Um, and this is interesting, the Bible uses the dove. One thing that's different between a dove and a pigeon is doves cannot be trained and will not be trained. That's why they're not technically doves, the wedding let them go, because they don't train. Pigeons will fly and go back to their little place wherever they're trained to go, uh, but not so with doves. But doves are unique in the way that they, um, they won't just come and land somewhere unless they're, they're comfortable being there. As soon as there's a threat or anything close to a threat or something that makes them uncomfortable, they just go off. Isn't it interesting, the Holy Spirit? Boy, there's a, there's a bunch of lessons there. I hope if you're a, a, a Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit, to remember the nature of the Holy Spirit is typified by a dove, not a chicken, not a duck, not a screeching eagle or a screaming uh, red-tailed hawk that's scaring everybody. Um, there's a lot of churches you think that's what it is, but not so, it's a dove, peace. And it's something that, when, you know when the Bible says that we should be careful not to quench the Holy Spirit? Um, I wonder if there's things we do in our lives, for sure, sin, but just attitudes and actions where the Holy Spirit just kind of takes off. That's why in our lives, I hope we keep our sin and our repentance time very, very short because you and I, we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the power of God in our lives. And if you, if you are sinning it up and, and, and stuff like that, um, you know, the Lord can't be with you in your sin. Like where there's light, there can't be no darkness. And the same as opposite is true. If there's darkness, the light's gonna not be there. Uh, the Holy Spirit, I, I, I wonder why, you know, David said, oh Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because that's possible. Samson got so used to having the Holy Spirit upon him crushing people, killing people with the power of the Every time Samson did something, the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and he crushed the Philistines, killed them, you know, slew them, uh, did all those amazing feats of strength in the Old Testament. Every time the Holy Spirit came upon Samson. But you remember after he kept sinning it up, sleeping with a prostitute, drinking wine with the Philistines, doing all the things a Nazarite should not have been doing. And then finally, when he got his hair cut, the third thing of the Nazarite vow, it says that Delilah 
tormented him there in the house. Oh, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he stood up and he said, I will beat up those Philistines just like I did before. But he did not know that the spirit of God had departed from him. And then the Philistines came in and poked out his eyes and bound him up to the mill where he ground mill month after month. Like what a, what a horrible end of a story. So that makes me think, Lord, I want your dove, your Holy Spirit to stay on my life. So keep your list of sins short, repent, confess, and he is faithful to cleanse you. And, and then the Holy Spirit will come flying back into your life and, and not allow the Holy Spirit to depart from you. Uh, that's something that we should be cognizant of, I think. But Jesus, of course, this is the beginning of it right here. This is when the Holy Spirit first comes down in this first baptism, New Testament church era where Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And that's what will happen with the believer in the new church. From this point on, people that are baptized, they're gonna be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, which is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Um, important part of the story. Well, back to our uh, story here. Um, uh, next, we have the wit witness. Um, um, so we, we've seen kind of number one, the witness of his servanthood. Um, with all these eyewitnesses, including God the Father himself. And now that brings us to the second uh, sort of section, 12 through 28, verse, uh, the servant and his authority. Uh, let's see how Jesus has his authority. We start in verse 12. And immediately the spirit dri uh, driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan and was with wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. Now, again, is Mark's gospel moving fast enough for you? Man, whew, what happened? That was the temptation of Christ, two verses. Remember Matthew chapter four, half that chapter tells this story. You say, well, Brett, what's the point? Well, did you notice? He gives us two things we didn't know yet. Uh, like, I love that Mark, even though he's hard hitting and short, uh, we learn a few things. Um, uh, and, and by the way, um, did you see how uh, we see words here like in verse 12, remember I told you there's a word that Mark uses that all the other gospels tend to not? It's the word immediately. Immediately there in verse uh, 12. Immediately the spirit. And, and by the way, um, did you, do you remember what Matthew said? The spirit did what? Well, Matthew says, led him out. Man, Mark just gets my blood pressure going. Immediately the spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. There's like a whole different kind of perspective that I find helpful and useful. Uh, some of your Bibles, instead of the word immediately, it's straight away, which means immediately. Um, and he will use this word straightway or immediately 41 times in the gospel of Mark. Um, so it's this fast paced, fast moving story of Jesus um, and Matthew's account versus Mark account is gonna be fun to compare because we just went through that one. Fast paced yet sometimes more information than any of the other gospels. It's kind of amazing. What's the new information here? Well, the, 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 uh, the 40 days to be precise is part of it, but also we didn't read about any wild beasts. That's a new thing here. Uh, Matthew didn't bring that part out. You say, well, what's the deal? Well, have you ever been out in the wilderness with wild beasts? Did you know in Bible times there were <clears throat> lions and bears and even not tigers, but panthers? Um, uh, there's still panthers. Uh, once in a while, you'll see a panther in Israel, but no more lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, in Israel, they're gone now. But during that time, Jesus is out there in the wilderness where there are uh, wild beasts. And uh, that's a scary endeavor. 
Um, we forget how dangerous this was, but here's Jesus there. And, and it says the angels came and ministered to him. What does the wild beast have to do anything? Uh, well, you could argue the link to the first Adam and the last Adam. Remember Jesus is called the last Adam in the Bible. The first Adam lived among the wild beasts and failed. Um, Jesus is gonna be the last Adam who will live among the wild beasts and succeed. Um, there's some interesting correlations there. Um, and the 40, 40 days uh, speaks of tempting and testing. Uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, Moses getting the law from Mount Sinai, 40 days and 40 nights, judgment of rain came upon the earth. The, all these numbers have great significance when it comes to biblical numerology and typology and what have you. So we'll, we'll be making references to that. So, um, so you see uh, this first scene here is the wilderness temptation. The next now we see Jesus preaching. Look at uh, verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel uh, of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, um, he saw Simon and Andrew. Now, before we get to the calling of these disciples, we see Jesus preaching this good message. And it's a, it's, the gospel message is not hard. I, I, hope, I hope you all, just even come to Athey Creek, I hope every, every Sunday I preach the gospel sometime in the sermon. I, I don't think I've, I missed that. I don't skip that ever. I try to sneak it in. Even if I don't do an invitation at the end, I'm still sneaking in the gospel every single time. And I, I love how Jesus, he just says, you know, the kingdom is, of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Like that, that's just a good solid word right there. That, that's a key. A lot of times people forget the repent part. You gotta repent before you can accept the gospel of grace. Repentance means to acknowledge your sin before God and to do an about face and to turn your life around. It doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect, but Jesus is uh, preaching repent and then the gospel. Um, so important there, that's the first thing he preaches here. Again, short and sweet. Gospel of Mark, his sermon's short. Now, verse 16, uh, it says, uh, now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, come after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Straightway, they uh, forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who all, uh, also were in the ship, mending their nets. Um, and straightway he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. We looked at this on Sunday and we talked about the nets. They were willing to forsake their nets and follow Jesus. And what are the nets that hold us back? We looked at that on the weekend. Well, verse 21, and they went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one that had authority, not as the scribes. I love this. Having um, discerning ears, the people said, he speaks differently than, and than others. I hope the Lord will give us as Christians in these days discerning ears because if there were scribes and Pharisees uh, and Sadducees in those days, we've got a plethora of even more wacko stuff out there that you can listen to. And I'm saddened to see what Christians cling to and what they listen to and, and um, you know, retweet and repost. And, and there's all kinds of stuff. You're just like, oh man, like, come on. 
Let's have discernment, folks, you know? And discernment is one of the, uh, the works of the Spirit in your life. Pray for discernment. Say, Lord, would you fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit that I might have uh, discernment? Um, so, uh, you know, hear the, quote, hear the quote in Jesus's words, you know? Remember the, uh, by the way, the synagogue in Capernaum is where I take uh, Athe Creekers. We go to the synagogue. The foundation is the one that was there with Jesus. The walls are a few hundred years after Jesus that are there still to this day. Um, but uh, um, I love, uh, the problem is with the people of Capernaum, they would see Jesus preach this, they would hear him preach this and they would see miracles, but they would not ultimately believe. So Capernaum became a cursed town because they would not listen to the truth of Jesus. So we see the wilderness temptation, then Jesus preaching, and then, um, and then we see Jesus' command over the demons starting in verse 23. It says, and there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, and uh, say, saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed in so much that they questioned among themselves saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Again, Mark's given us a real high level shot. You know, Jesus cast out the demons and now uh, it's spreading all over the, the, the world. And by the way, we know from other gospels, the religious leaders were saying Jesus was casting out these demons by the power of Beelzebub. Remember that whole thing? Um, and Jesus said, can a house divided against itself stand? In other words, by me taking out these demons, you think I'm a part of them or part of their team? Uh, it was ridiculous, but it was them, them being threatened and coming up with stupid arguments. Um, by the way, um, the demons were the only ones there who actually knew who Jesus really was. Did you notice that? Um, does Satan believe in Jesus? He does. And so do the demons. They, they, I mean, the demons are the only ones. They said, oh, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Well, they're right about that. Um, and, and this is an important thing to understand that, because um, there are people who say, I believe in God's existence and that Jesus existed but that doesn't mean you're saved. When it says, you know, um, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The word believe, it, it, it's, it's the word in the Greek word that it's more than just say, I, I believe he exists, but believe what he is, what he claims, what he says, who he claimed to be, um, and to submit yourself to that. Um, one, one pastor years ago put it to, uh, the idea of to believe in the godly sense is to lean on something with all of your weight. Now, for some of you skinny people, you don't know what that means. Because <laughs> it's nothing. But, you know, when I sit in a chair, I check the chair out a little bit beforehand to make sure it's, you know, it's pretty solid. Um, I remember when Tad and I were in New Zealand, we went up into that little tower. Uh, it's kind of like the Space Needle um, uh, in Seattle. They have one in Auckland, New Zealand. And we went up there because we were going to jump off the thing. They had this thing, but then they had a 220-pound limit uh, who could jump off of it. So we went up on there, but in the observation tower, way up high there, it was kind of fun. But one of the fun parts of that, if you've ever been to that, there's a glass floor in the section of it, and it's, it's really pretty cool. Um, and, and 
it's so funny because when I got there, there was all these people standing around the glass floor, but nobody was standing on it. And, um, and you could, you just walk right on it, but nobody was there. And this little kid's, mommy, can I go stand on it? She's like, no, whatever you do, don't walk out on that. You know? And uh, I thought that was funny. So I, I thought I would, I would freak everybody out. So I just kind of walked right out of the middle of the glass floor, <laughs> kind of jumped up and down a few times, you know, just kind of, and there was like people shrieking and stuff. And, and, and it was so cute. The little kid says, mommy, if he could do it, anyone could do it. <laughs> I increased the little guy's faith um, to believe. See, that's the word believe. To put all your weight on something, to, to put all your trust in something, to lean on it. Satan's not doing that, nor is his demons. They're not leaning on Christ. Um, I like that old hymn, leaning on the everlasting arms, because that's what we gotta do. When you're a Christian, a person of faith, to believe means to put all your weight and put your trust. Well, quickly, we're almost done. Um, but the, the next section here is um, verses 29 uh, through um, uh, 30, uh, or 34, I should say, uh, that speaks of the servant's sympathy, sympathy. So far, the witness of his servanthood, the servant and his authority, which had power over the demons. Um, but then we see the servant and his sympathy towards those that are hurting, verse 29. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. By the way, this is, we, we know where Simon Peter's house was in Capernaum. It's really cool. The only problem is the Catholics built the Millennium Falcon over Peter's house. It's a real bummer. If you've been to uh, Capernaum, you're like, where's Peter's house? Well, you kind of got to bend over and look under the Millennium Falcon that they built. Uh, and you can see the, the place where Peter's house once stood. But it's kind of an amazing thing. So they're, they're you know, um, they, they go from the synagogue and enter into Simon, Peter, and Andrew with, with James and John. But verse 30, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever and anon they tell, uh, tell him of her. And he came to, and took her by the hand, lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto them. Um, and at evening, well, pause for a second. So, um, by the way, when you leave the synagogue, do you bring Jesus with you? Because it's easy to have Jesus here at Athey Creek, uh, kind of typing as the synagogue here. But, um, you know, we have Jesus here, but do you bring Jesus home to your house? Because that's where the real trouble is, you know? Here they are in the synagogue, Jesus is doing all kinds of cool stuff, preaching and stuff, casting out demons, but then they go to Peter's house and Peter brings Jesus with them. I hope you're doing the same thing. Uh, how do you have Jesus in your home? Worship, prayer, the word, the same things we do here, you do in your house and make your home a synagogue. I grew up in a house that always had praise music going in the background all the time. Um, you know, my parents would do family devotions all the time. We would talk about Jesus. We had Jesus everywhere in our home. I, I got to grow up with that. So that when I grew up and went to my friend's house who didn't have Jesus in their home, wow, as a kid, I could say, wow, this, this house feels cold and dark and empty. Um, if there's a difference between a Jesus house and a non-Jesus house. I hope you have a Jesus house. Um, well, Jesus comes with Peter and because of that, his mother-in-law gets healed. Bring Jesus with you and there's blessing. That's kind of always the case. Um, so he takes her by the hand, uh, lifts her up and the fever immediately left. I love how she, the people that are best ministers are the people who've been blessed by Jesus the most. 
Uh, we, we found that in our volunteer team here at Athey, some of the amazing people that God has redeemed and saved and how the Lord's using them in so many ways here at Athey. I, I see that same pattern. And then verse 32, and at evening, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils and all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. Interesting, um, demons, where are the demons today? Some people say, well, the Bible has all these stories of demons and where are they today? Well, um, you know, 20 years ago is harder to spot in America, but are you noticing? Are you guys noticing what's going on, the demonic stuff that's happening right under our noses? If you live in Portland, just go downtown Portland, walk around the, the train station and down by the leather company uh, where I go get my leather stuff for my ax covers for the ironworks, the, the leather place, man, they, they finally said, Pastor Brett, you gotta go in the back door. You, you can't walk in the front door. There's too many needles and tents and stuff and you just can't even get in our front door. So they, they kind of let me, let the, you know, it's, it's, it's so sad. And then you see these people walking around. It looks like zombies walking around downtown. And, and you say, well, Brett, that's drugs. Did you know the Bible connects drugs with demonic entities and darkness and evil? And I think if you walk downtown and you see what's happening to people, it's demonic in nature. It's heartbreaking. Um, we're seeing that. Um, I remember when I used to travel around the world as a younger man, I used to I'd go to a lot of countries, I've been to places where I've, I've met demon-possessed people. Um, I can tell you stories, uh, you know, in Honduras and Africa and places in Vanuatu and some of the islands where there's dark stuff that's been going on for millennia. Um, one of the weirdest stories I'll tell you, and then we'll close. Uh, when I was in Africa, my first trip to Africa, years and years ago, I was just uh, in my 20s, um, but I was going around, uh, well, you, you, you fly from here to France and then from France to Burkina, to Mali, Mali to Burkina Faso and land in Ouagadougou. And then we drove in a car from Ouagadougou to Tenkudougou. And then from Tenkudougou, we took these mopeds for like hours and hours out in the middle of nowhere. And the pastors, I had a translator with me because nobody in that, like if you go to Burkina Faso, you'll, you'll, you'll not meet anyone who speaks English. They might speak a little French or there's a lot of people in town that speak French, but it's all, you know, Moray and tribal languages. You don't meet English people, especially when you go out in the bush. Nobody speaks English. So I had a translator with me. But um, long story short, they, they said, Pastor Brett, we want to bring you to the healing hospital. And I was like, okay, hospital. And uh, we'd like you to pray for our, um, our people that are sick. What they meant to tell me was, we want you to pray for the demon possessed. Um, and one of my guys said, Brett, we're going to the, the healing hospital where, where they don't know what to do with these people that are demon possessed. Well, I said, what, how do they know? Well, they run around lighting people's huts on fire and screaming and shrieking and hurting themselves, scratching themselves and hurting. Like, and it's just, you know, I was like, didn't know what to expect. Well, sure enough, they don't have cells or padded walls and there was no building. There was just trees and bushes <clears throat> and these people, and the way they keep them from running around lighting people's house on fire is they, they hew out these big logs they hew out a hole just big enough to stick someone's ankle through the hole in the log. Then they drive a spike down through the log right next to their ankle so they can't get their ankle out. They're stuck in a log. Because they don't have prisons or insane you know, mental institutions. Or, um, so that's the way they were. 
And, and so we'd go around and, and we, we would pray and they'd have pastors come and pray. And every so often, somebody would be delivered from the demonic thing. And they'd, they'd like, you could just obviously see there were, the, the demon left and they would take the nail out and let him go. It was kind of a crazy situation. You think, why don't we see that in America? I, I just don't think we have the logs. Um, uh, and we used to put people in mental institutions, which we don't do as much anymore. And now they're on the street and it's so sad. It's heartbreaking to see what we do with people that are either, and I'm not saying all insanity is demon possession, but I do think that some of it we dismiss as insanity when some of it's demonic obsession or possession. But this one lady, I'm walking through this, this one lady, she's sitting in a log with her foot in there and I'm just walking around with a couple guys, but um, she looks at me and I, and I thought, wow, this is kind of weird. She's got kind of a weird look about her. And, um, but you know, uh, native Burkina Faso, they call him Burkina Bay, person who was born there. Um, and she said, hey, you from California? <laughs> I was like, she said a more American version than I could just do it. Like she sounded perfect, clear English. And I was like, oh, uh, I was born in California. She said, oh, you're from California. And, um, and so I, I just kind of kept walking. And it was so weird because I hadn't heard somebody speak English the whole time I was in Burkina Faso, especially out in the middle of the bush. So I went to some of the pastors. I said, that lady, where did she learn English? She doesn't know English. She's never been out of this village. And I said, no, she speaks English better than I do. And they said, no, she's demon possessed. And she, they, they said, she has run around lighting houses on fire. That was the reason she was in the log. Um, and I, it, I, it's, I can't do this justice because you're just thinking I'm probably one of these weird Christians making up stuff. But um, as far as I could tell, this lady was they were, they were just the, if you could have been there and sensed the spirit that was around her just saying something as weird as, hey, you from California? Um, it, it was demonic, it really was. I, I, there's no other way to explain it. I've seen it in other places and, and around the world, but we went around and prayed. We even prayed over this woman and she started screaming in her native tongue. Uh, and it was, it was heartbreaking to see. One of the things I think we as Christians should be maybe more open to than we have been traditionally is this, that maybe we're misdiagnosing some things. And by the way, you don't have to do the exorcism like the Catholic exorcist with a cross and spirit manifestation and shriek and do all this weird stuff. You don't have to do that. Um, Jesus just commanded the demons to depart and they would leave. Um, and by the way, uh, Michael did it with de debating over the body of Moses. And, and Michael, the, the archangel said, uh, the Lord rebuke thee, Satan. Like we don't have to rebuke, I rebuke you, devil. You don't have to do that. That's just dumb TV stuff. But to pray over people that are demon possessed, you might call it drug addiction. You might call it insanity. But could you be more sensitive? I wonder if there's more demonic stuff going on. You know, and, and man, I'll tell you, I sense demonic stuff with the transgender movement. There's all kinds of demonic stuff that's rising in the days in our country, in our world. And we as Christians should properly diagnose that, be sensitive to that. Be ready to pray and cast that care to the Lord. Um, enough on that. And we'll finish up uh, chapter one next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. And Lord, we are thankful for this hard-hitting, fast-paced version of the gospel, Lord. We thank you for this gospel of Mark. And I would pray, Lord, that you'd sharpen us to be sensitive to your spirit, that we would allow your spirit to rest on our lives and that we'd be moved by the power of your spirit. Um, Lord, give us sensitivity to the darkness that we would see it for what it is. And Lord, that we would be ready to pray and, and, and speak truth into people's lives, Lord. Bless these, your people who've taken time with this part of the Bible tonight and may it bring forth good fruit.
in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.